0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Computer Weekly Downtime Upload Podcast. I'm Cliff Sarin and my guest today is the dot-com innovator and strategist David Holtzman, who previously worked as IBM Chief Scientist and is the designer of the Global DNS System. David, uh, thank you very much for being here today on the podcast. Uh, I know you have recently taken up a new role at Naoris Protocol, but uh, let's just get things started, if I may, by asking you to give us a little background about yourself, how you keep yourself busy, and what you do in your spare time, please.
1: Sure. Um, I have a um, sort of an unusual background, like a lot of people in the internet, I think. Uh, I started... A long time ago uh, as a philosophy teacher I got a degree in philosophy I taught Mm -hmm. um, this is many many years ago and then I needed to make money and I got involved with the US military Mm -hmm. and ended up doing intelligence work so I was an intelligence agent for several years they taught me to speak Russian I became a cryptographer at the end of the cold war. Mm. And I was a sum- submariner and, uh, spent quite a few years traveling to unusual places on submarines doing what you might think a Russian speaking cryptographer might do on a submarine. Uh-huh. And, um, I went from there to the national security agency. Mm-hmm. I was a cosmonaut analyst, but that well, during all this period, I, I got, more degrees in computer science and math and other things, but the the common element in all this was information and computers. Mm. So this was back in the early 80s at this point, and I got fascinated with computers. I left everything I was doing, and started working for computer companies mm. uh, in the Washington D.C. area. I was a programmer um, in a lot of different languages. I became a designer, project manager, software architect. I was the uh, systems administ- administrator for TRW mm. and then I uh, eventually I was at Booz Allen running their research group and I designed a uh, heterogeneous data access system and I built it on a next computer. I remember reviewing
0: and, one in the uh, sort of early 90s. It it was my, my very first job and this beautiful ah, black box turned was up weird. on my desk.
1: <laughs> it's, still, it's still the most beautiful computer I've ever used and... I gave a pre. I I was at a trade show. Steve Jobs walked by. He was impressed with what I had done. Had his guys grab my computer, bring it on the stage, and I became part of a televised keynote, hmm. um, which you know didn't hurt my career any. And I got heavily involved with Next for a number of years. Got to know Steve. Uh, brought all, uh, our customers onto Next, which was mostly intelligence agencies. Hmm. And then I. Um, when Next sort of tanked and Steve went to Apple, I moved on and sold my stuff to IBM. I became the chief scientist of the Internet Information Group. I built the search engine that went into something at the time called Lotus Notes. And um, then at this point, we're in the mid-90s. The Internet is clearly starting up commercially and going somewhere. I had a ton of job offers because of my background, and I chose to go to a, a small very small, sleepy company called Network Solutions in Herndon, Virginia, mm. because they had the contract to run uh, the domain name system. Oh, right. um, also, also the TCPIP system for North America and the entire cellular data system. So, mm. you know, back then, that, that wasn't that big a deal. Uh, there were only about 50,000, 60,000 domain names. Mm. So I came on as senior VP of technology and then became CTO and it blew up and this was the beginning of the dot-com bubble um it was it went from 50 60,000 domain names to by the time i left in 2000 at the end of 2001 we had 10 million domain names <laughs> wow so the our company went public mm. um it, we got we were in the middle of the maelstrom of the of all the controversy involving the dot-com world yes so i, I got a taste of all this and um I got to know a lot of the people, I made a little bit of money. And one of the things that I got out of that, that experience was that the internet was about to become a bit of a scary place. And the scary part for me, and this is probably what I'm gonna be talking about today, the scary part was the uh, the desire of people who didn't know what they were doing to regulate something that they didn't understand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: And this started creating um, the the true problems with privacy, um, a lack of understanding of what security means, that kind of thing. I wrote a couple of books. I wrote a book called privacy lost about the stuff. It's still being taught in law schools. I, um, I wrote a book called surviving identity theft. I helped, uh, I know this is a long-winded answer, but hopefully <laughs> it'll give you stuff mm. the, um, I helped run two us presidential campaigns. Once as CTO one is chief security officer. And for the last six or seven years, I've been working with blockchain companies um helping not doing the cryptocurrencies as much but i'm more i'm fascinated with the very idea of a blockchain Mm. because it's actually uh, quite subversive when you look at at what it does and um and i I like that Mm. and i met naoris protocol i met david caraglio the uh, ceo i loved what he was doing the philosophy of, of the company fits mine and um and i I'm just like the people and I'm
0: fascinated with it. Okay, well, I mean, we've, 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 you've spoken quite a lot about what was going to be in my first question, actually, about you know, the past, it was about the past of the internet, you know, where, where, where things have come from. And uh, but, but, um, and also you've touched on some of the concerns, but let's, let's just drill down a bit. And particularly, I just want to pick up on what you were saying about your concern around um, blockchain if i sure. may. yep well the the it's not concern it's kind of attraction i
1: guess mm. so that one of the nice things about about the concept of a blockchain is the thing anything you put on a blockchain is fundamentally immutable mm. i mean there there are ways of messing with it by changing the indices to locate it but basically a data object committed to a blockchain is gonna stay on that blockchain. And that's the first interesting thing. The second interesting thing about blockchain is that you can assign um, control or ownership or whatever word you wanna use of that data object to anybody by exchanging cryptographic uh, tokens. Mm. Um, that's kind of interesting too. And you know for lots of reasons we can talk about. And then the third thing wasn't, wasn't part of bitcoin but it came in with ether which is the idea of smart contracts and and that for me was the killer for blockchains because it um it allows us as consumers and citizens to mostly not need lawyers and government people quite as much as we used to we can ratify our own agreements and we don't need to pay someone to do it for us
0: oh i see okay um uh... But but um, why why do you think there is so much interest in 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 that in that idea that you know we we're we're able to ratify our own agreements, uh, you know given that you know that I mean and look, look, looking looking at you know the, the institutions that exist today the banks and and you know you, you mentioned obviously the lawyers for the contracts. Uh, I mean, uh, th- these are things that have existed for a long time, and people are used to that way of transacting. Uh, so why why is there so much interest in getting around these things that already exist?
1: Well, I, I think that the interest in getting around it is a very... It's a minority, but it's a very intelligent, articulate, and loud minority, so we hear from them a lot. Mm. I think the majority of the people... Um, are uh, like the status quo and they they're afraid of things that are different and some to some extent that's generational and age related but i think it's a an innate human reaction i think genuinely creative people thrive on chaos because to some extent i would define creativity as the the art of making something interesting out of out of chaos so if you even remotely believe that if you don't have chaos you're probably not having a lot of creativity going on um you know that if you ever ever have little kids and you want to get them to do something really interesting take a whole bunch of random stuff and dump it in a pile on the floor and it's amazing what they do Hmm. it's that's how i view the internet right now i think that it's it's uh we're not done. It's just really just beginning in a lot of ways, and we'll talk about AI, I think, which is sort of interesting. <laughs> we right we, now.
0: we probably will actually, but uh, before before we do, you know, but before we do, um, uh, and I just wanted to you know just explore a bit more about about the internet itself and. Uh, you know, when you were introducing yourself, uh, I mean, you spoke spoke about you know the protocols, the IP protocol, TCP/IP, in fact, and mm. other th- and things like that, and obviously we have the DNS. Uh, just generally, and now now we're speaking about you know the blockchain and um, Bitcoin, but what do you think we can learn from the longevity of these protocols?
1: Well. One thing uh, is it, let's let's generalize this to technology. One thing is that there's always resistance to a new technology, but once it's adopted, it's it's virtually impossible to get rid of it. Hmm. And there's a lot of, and I, and I think if you apply that to what's going on today, you can make some pretty good future predictions. So in England, for instance, the um the width of a, a lane on a highway is exactly, the width of the axle of a Roman chariot, <laughs> and that is not a coincidence. Hmm. And th- the reason is because people just build a, t- uh, a road in a town and then a highway, and nobody wants to rock the status quo. This is a protocol, yes. so you you always want backward compatibility. And in this case, we're talking you know a thousand years. Um, when when the computer, when the the DOS computers first started, the Microsoft types running MS DOS. They, um, There was a thing in the operating system that restricted the size of a data object to 64K. Hmm. That, that limitation is still basically in Windows. It's, it's, it's a fake limitation. It actually started, I think, in MS-DOS or in uh, Dr. DOS, even before MS-DOS. But it's a, it's, a, it's a limitation. It's sort of a protocol. And it's been around for 25 years because it's too much work to change it. So that's why I, another a good modern example is TCP/IP, which you brought up. TCPIP has been around, it, I would argue, that it is the beginning of the Internet. Mm. And um, it was what we call IPv4. So IPv6 was agreed on 20-some years ago. And you know what? Nobody's really using it yet. Really? And, well, <laughs> it's it's not even, I just looked at my own ISP this morning, Verizon, who's one of the biggest ones yes. in this part, and and they still don't support IPv6. So it's some smaller ISPs do, some do, some don't. It's, it's more curiosity. It has not been adopted. Um, mm-hmm. The DNS system, the domain name system, there was a protocol called DNSSEC that was agreed on about 25 years ago. And it was a way of carrying uh, cryptographic identification information at each node in the DNS tree. And you know what? That's still not being used. The DNS system has fundamentally no security whatsoever, even today. If you had, if you have even the remotest idea what you're doing, you could sit in a hotel room with a laptop and take entire countries off the internet.
0: Really? So-
1: yeah, <clears throat> absolutely.
0: Surprised it doesn't happen
1: more often, actually.
0: Mm. Uh, I mean, I I know that, you know, countries have taken certain domains off the internet. Uh, uh, You know, there are examples of where YouTube was switched off in in certain regions of the world at certain times and and things like that. But um, would this DNSSEC have made that much more difficult to do?
1: Um, Not against this country it's more about spoofing and stopping oh. DNS spoofing hmm. the country. The country thing is a whole different problem. I it's, so the DNS system is a, it's a big tree structure, right? Yes. So you have a thing called the root at the dot w- at the very top. In fact, I have a computer in my house that was the dot for during the dot com bubble, which is kind of <laughs> interesting. And it's, doesn't look like much, but it basically ran the internet for a couple of years. Hmm. And, um, so the the DNS system is a big tree. So a country can get in at some point and mess with the the tree um, at a level they control and everything below. So you so in China, for instance, they have what they call the great um, the great Internet Wall in China. Yes. So they can control everything under you know the, their their own TLD, their own top level domain. The problem comes in. How do they deal with something that isn't in their control, such as say, Google.com? If they Mm -hmm. wanted, which they did actually, they wanted to suppress that because Google's not Google's not going to let them do it. And the .com top level domain and the .dot itself are run by ICANN, and they're not going to let China do it. So in that case, since they can't do it in the DNS system, they do it uh, by blocking TCP/IP addresses Mm. at at routers. Uh, in major uh, ISPs coming into the country. So
0: it's, it's not a really good, it's not a good solution. It's just mm-hmm. what they all use now. It's as simple as that. Just, and we can do that on our own home router, can't we? We can block IP sure. addresses.
1: Right, <laughs> and then if you have, but you can get around that. And um, VPNs, I mean, I was in Tibet a couple of years uh, before the pandemic and they were blocking everything in sight, including Google. And I, I had things I wanted to do and I tested it. So I brought a couple of VPNs and some equipment with me and I was always able to get around their suppression because you know if you think about how they're doing that they're blocking as I said blocking IP addresses that come from known places but all, but I used I switched over and I started using servers on the Isle of Man and they hadn't hadn't really thought about that so that <laughs> that connection went through.
0: Yeah so I mean we we are we are sort of talking of quite a lot about security at the moment and uh what do you think needs to be done f- to make the internet more secure i know that's a, how long it's a piece of string. what can we do but i mean surely uh we can we we should be doing more than we are already doing
1: well it's so there's there's a couple levels in which i can answer this at one level security the right the right way to think about security cyber security is it's not a binary thing. You're not either secure or not secure. Privacy's that way too. Mm. It's it's a, it's a, it's on the spectrum. You know, it's it's a it's a continuum, right? Yes. And it's in, it's an inverse geometric cost thing. It's like an inverted parabola. So the more secure you want to be, the more it costs you. But it's not linear, it's geometric. So network uptime is the same exact way. So if you the more secure you want to be the more and more money you have to throw at it and when you look at that curve and you put money on it there's a point where executives of companies simply don't want to spend that extra money um and that point's pretty quick usually so they don't because there's no real penalty for them at least in the United States I mean we've had just massively egregious data breaches I mean the Equifax you know the credit yes. bureau company they they nailed i think one out of every two or three americans in the whole country and they got slapped with a a, a very very minimal fine mm. so if the downside is is trivial why would you spend half a billion dollars to improve your security that's so that's a, that's actually a, a, an issue for regulation but that's that's one level of security but drilling down another layer the fundamental problem is that the way the internet and all of computers are designed and built, and operating systems, and it's it's fundamentally insecure. The von Neumann machine architecture that we've used since the beginning of computers is a massively insecure architecture because there's no protection for memory spaces. So most most hacks come from uh, um, taking advantage of this that a memory location um, that looks like it's data, like you just typed your name in a field somewhere and it goes into a variable somewhere in a program, that address could also be part of the operating system or it could be a machine instruction. Mm. So if if you can confuse the computer and instead of reading it as your name, it reads it as a bunch of code and executes it, Guess what? You've just hacked the computer. So and you're talking sort of, sorry, you're talking about
0: like a buffer overflow attack.
1: That's I was just going to say that. Yes. That's a that is that is exactly what a buffer overflow is. So that stuff is so inherent to the architecture of the way these things are built, we would have to start over again. So the the only way to make things truly secure would be to throw everything out and start over with the idea of security. But when when, the, when computers were first started, when TCP/IP was built, when the C and C++ languages were built, nobody thought that we were going to be at the point we are today where you have trillions of dollars at stake based on security issues, mm. or they would have probably built it differently. So then I go back to my Roman chariot analogy. Do I think we're going to throw all this stuff out and start over? There's not a chance in hell. So we, we're stuck with what we have hmm. and people 50 years from now will have all kind of weird, you know, protocols and they won't understand where they came from. It's going to be because their legacy from today. Yes. So if you, go into a, if you go into a browser and you play around with the HTTP protocol, there's like ridiculous things that it will accept because it made sense 30 years ago. Like uh, you can type in Archie or Waze with a colon and a slash slash. And then put Archie used to be a kind of a search engine, and you can put that in right into the command line, and, and it'll accept it because it's a legacy thing.
0: Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, I just want to go back and drill down a little bit on the on the on the on the microprocessors because uh, you know they, I know, say if, you know, in, like in the Windows operating system, you can do like the memory protect thing. I don't know specifically what they call it, and uh, it sort of does a flag in the operating system, and somehow stops in in theory you know st- stops data from being written into places and then executed uh um i mean do you think things like that make much of a difference
1: yeah it helps a little bit but the um the the best way to be secure today is just to move faster than whoever's trying to get you um and and I guess this was gonna be the point I was I was getting to and not to not to go into the subject already, but I, I think the future of cybersecurity is artificial intelligence.
0: Hmm.
1: I think I think that the security hacks are are already being driven by AI systems and, and heuristic systems, and they're moving so fast, the only way to move fast enough to block them is to have a commensurate artificial intelligence. And and that kind of leads us to this future where we have com- dueling computers trying to break in and protect networks. Hmm. So the analogy I have for this, and you know, I'm ex-military, but the um, surface-to-air missile systems, especially on ships, they back in World War II, you would you know you would have a guy with a gun, and he, somebody else would be looking in the sky with binoculars, hmm. and they would go, there they are at three o'clock, and then you would of swivel the gun around and blow the, the missile out of the sky, you know, that does not happen today, right? So yes. what happens today is the thing called standoff distance, the the range in which you can shoot something is far greater than line of sight. In yes. fact, it could be halfway around the planet and, and often is. So if someone's shooting a missile at you or a rocket, the thing is going faster than the speed of sound. It's being shot and perhaps 1,500 miles away, no human being alive could shoot that thing down. So it was aimed by a computer, and the and the counter-defense system, the defense system on the ships and ground sites are being run by AI systems with computers yes. because it's the only chance in hell they have of shooting that thing before it kills them.
0: Mm. And, and that that is going to be applied across the Internet for security. That's what I believe. I,
1: I think it's already happening and i mean when you think about password cracking programs and things you know it used to be kind of a joke 20 years ago but you can't make a password good enough these days that something can't crack it mm. and it, it's it's just it's just a matter of time and c- computational money you know how much computer cycles are you willing to aim at something that's why spear phishing is much more dangerous than phishing because spear phishing you're dealing with a smaller range of possibilities and anybody can be cracked um, if they're targeted.
0: I, I guess that was going to be my final thing to to cover, really. But, um, uh, I mean, w- what are your concerns about what the web and the Internet innovation?
1: Well, so I kind of alluded to this before. I think I will I, I guess I'm I'm not exactly a, a crypto anarchist, but I, I have sympathy for them. And I. I feel that creativity occurs with a certain degree of chaos and I think fake regulatory, fake order of creative things is chilling and stops innovation cold. And I think we're seeing that all over the place right now. We're getting overreactions to, um, to egregious incidents. So the whole FTX thing is going to, you know, that was one guy, maybe, maybe a handful of people Uh, In the early days of a crypto thing, they got over. They're like Bernie Madoff. Okay, they're going to go to jail for a million years. But that doesn't mean you have to regulate the whole industry because of the one company and the one person. But we will. And and we will absolutely do that. And because I've dealt with many – I live in Washington, D.C. At one point, I explained what the Internet was 25 years ago to almost every single congressman and senator – Mm. On a one to one or a small group basis, because they had no idea what it was. So, these people, there's only two people in the entire United States Congress right now that have any computer science background at all. That's out of 535 people. So, and they're not computer scientists either, they just have a background in it. Mm. So, be, people, regulators don't understand this. So, when they don't understand something, their tendency is to squash every imaginable permutation. Of the thing they're afraid of because that way they don't get they don't get blamed for for the problem they're risk adverse people i i think the internet is is not been created by risk averse people it's been created by risk taking people and that was in the early days of the internet that was in the dot-com that was the beginning of the crypto world and i'm i'm seeing it now with some of the ai stuff it's i think it's chilling if if the creativity is suppressed artificially because of fear in maintaining an organizational status quo. That's my big
0: fear. But on, but on the flip side of that, uh, the innovators don't always think about the consequences of what they are innovating. Rarely. Uh, so, you know, there, there is a risk, for instance, you look at uh, social networking, no one would have mm-hmm. predicted that that sort of technology could be used to it would be a new source for a start. And second, right. it would influence uh, people's ability to to vote and what they would vote on.
1: Well, I think I have a lot of faith not in individuals, but in groups of people. And I believe in crowdsourcing, and I like I like the idea today that you, as if you were a politician or a celebrity, there is not a thing you can do wrong anywhere in the world where somebody won't get you on camera or something mm. and report it to everybody. And I can see why it would annoy the celebrities, but I, I think it's I think it's kind of cool to ha- hold everybody accountable. So the the proliferation of information and the easy access to it um, provides a more aware public, which hopefully allows us to create better mores and folkways and policies now the the problem with this is is the whole ai thing now because now you don't really know what's true anymore Hmm. so you can get a picture or video and it looks absolutely perfectly reasonable it fits sort of what you think that person might have done wrong anyway and then but it isn't them and you really have no way of knowing so that that's kind of scary the the fake information thing—I um, don't have an answer for this either—and it, it that really terrifies me, especially in elections.
0: Mm. Uh, well, on, on on that note, we should we should call it a day today, David. But thank you ever sure. so much. Uh, thank you so much for taking part in today's podcast, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.